<clears throat> the comments that were made earlier about the Lord trying to bring this message to this church. And there are a couple of reasons I think it is difficult for God to really help us as Seventh-day Adventists to grasp the message. Number one, <clears throat> those who are, excuse me, <clears throat> those who are speaking on the subject are not all agreed. And as a result, it brings confusion because one speaker comes in, he says one way, another one comes in, says it a different way. Uh, quite a few years ago, I was asked to attend a conference on righteousness by faith at Heartland. And Standish wanted to, he gathered all the main speakers on this topic together and his plan was he told us we need to unite we need to be teaching the same thing and he explained what was happening in the Adventist church actually that meeting was the worst one I ever attended because it was so much argument and so much saying I'm the one that's got it right and the other guys are wrong and so it opened up my eyes to the fact that some people may have the theory reasonably good, but they don't have the practice very good. And because the practice is not there, the disunion exists. So that, that makes it hard. But I believe if, if all of you will study, doesn't matter who the speaker is, go home and study and check them out, that you will be able to arrive at the right message <laughs> and not be, uh, you know, confused by the fact that not everybody says it the same. Now, small differences really don't matter, you know. Uh, in fact, I read a statement by Ellen White. She said, all cannot see in the same line of vision. So small differences, don't, don't worry about that because each person has the ability to see things in a certain way and they can't see it the same way as somebody else. But the bigger things... Uh, are made clear enough that if we're not united, somebody's not studying enough. So we, we need to, it's a, it's a call for us to study, I believe. That's the main thing. <clears throat> I had a second one, but I forgot what that one was. But uh, we're going to study today on justification by faith. This is, you might say, the primary focus of the 1888 message, although some have narrowed the message down to justification by faith only, and I don't think that's correct, uh, because as you, as you study the whole area, there's a lot more uh, brought in than just that. But it is the one that we all desperately need and if we don't have that we're not really converted oh yeah I thought of the second one the second reason why it's so hard to get Adventists to understand this is because they already think they understand it when they don't and if if you think you understand it already you're you're not listening carefully and you're not going home and studying to see, is that really different from what I have thought in the past? And in fact, that was one of the reasons why it was rejected in 1888, because the pastors thought they already knew. And they really didn't think this new version was 
was right. And so that's, that's been a barrier, but somehow we've got to get over that and say, well, let me study and see. Maybe there's a new aspect that I didn't understand before. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead. Uh, one of the reasons why people struggle with justification, it's a pretty big word. We've, we've tried to define it. Uh, we've said it's just as if I never sinned and all that, which, you know, those are all good definitions. But I like the simpler word in this quote. Pardon and justification are one and the same thing. Faith and works, page 103. So what we're really talking about is pardon. That's the simpler word. It's easier for us to grasp what this is talking about. <clears throat> In Romans 3, verses 24 to 26, it says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now there's a, a really key word there, freely. In other words, you don't have to beg God to uh, pardon you. He gives it freely. Being justified freely or pardoned freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And here is one of the aspects of pardon. <clears throat> when a person has been pardoned, it says, to declare his righteousness, that's Christ's righteousness, for the remission of sins that are past. So when a person is pardoned, Jesus announces to the universe that you are as perfect as Jesus Christ. He announces that before the whole universe. Through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, <clears throat> that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus, or the partner of him which believeth in Jesus. Now, there's one part of that text I can't explain. How it is just for God to do this. I don't know how it can be just, but he says it is. And so I just have to accept it <clears throat> as being just. But the part that I do understand to some degree, I don't think we understand it all, is that one of the blessings that comes in the package called pardon is that he will declare his righteousness in place of mine. And that's the way we look while we are in Christ. <clears throat> while we are in Christ, God is not looking at what's wrong with us. He is looking at the perfection that we have in Jesus. And we do altogether too much looking at what's wrong with us. And this is one of the reasons we don't make the progression in the Christian life that he wants us to make, because we're looking too much. Uh, you're probably familiar somewhat with hydrotherapy and in hydrotherapy, when you have the flu or when you have pneumonia or some other lung uh, infection, we have a process by which we put uh, on your chest uh, a cloth that has been heated. Uh, steam is the best way, but you can do it in a microwave. And you get it, it has to be wet though, <laughs> and you get it hot 
and you put it on as hot as you can stand for three minutes. And then you take some ice water and a cloth and you put that on for 30 seconds. The difference in time is six, six times as much hot as cold. The cold represents, you know, looking at your sins, seeing your need for a savior, seeing your need for pardon. But six times that much, he wants us to be thinking about the perfect righteousness that we have because we're in him, because he has pardoned our sins. And the more you do it correctly, the faster progress you will make. <clears throat> in uh, Mount of Blessing, I guess I didn't put the uh, page. I think it's 119 but, or 114, somewhere in there. But it gives a broader picture of pardon than what I think most people understand. It says forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. So if someone were to say on the cross everybody was forgiven, it wouldn't be right. And you'll see why it wouldn't be right. When God gives the promise that he will abundantly pardon, he adds as if the meaning of that promise exceeded all that we could comprehend, and then it quotes a passage from the Bible on pardon from Isaiah 55, 7 through 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Now, we use this text in different ways, but the original setting is pardon. So it's saying that God's thoughts about pardon are way higher than our thoughts about pardon. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For instance, if you come to me and you say, Pastor Atwood, I, I'm sorry what I said to you. It wasn't very nice, and I'm sorry I, I said it to you. The pardon that I give you is on a very low level compared to what God gives. The reason is, I can't change your heart. I can forgive you and I not hold it against you. That I can do, but I can't change you. But God is not in that position. He has something way higher that he can do in this matter of pardon. Oh, here, here's the reference. It's 114. <clears throat> God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. See, a lot of people think it's just a judicial act, and that's why they might even think that everybody was pardoned at Calvary because it's just a judicial act. But it says, no, it's not just a judicial act. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. So that higher pardon that Isaiah is trying to tell us about is twofold. Yes, there is a change in the, in the record, but in addition to that, he changes you. In other words, He's not going to forgive you or pardon you and you want to do it again. He's not going to do that. And yet, if he didn't work a miracle, you'd be stuck there. You would want to do it again. And so he says, I will perform a miracle on their heart and I will cause them to not want to ever do that again. Now, I'm not saying you won't do it again, 
because you may not hang on to that power and you may do it again. But you will never like it as long as you're pardoned. You will never want to do it. It will never be pleasing to you to do it. And if you do fall into it again, you're going to feel bad about it. Why? Because he changed the very desires of your heart. Now, that's a pretty good pardon, wouldn't you say? Nobody else can do it. You know, occasionally we have a situation here on earth where a man is a murderer and he, and he gets put in prison and he, he's given a death sentence and his mother decides to try to get him out. And so she goes to the governor and she pleads with the governor and gives whatever reasons, you know, she can give. And once in a while, the governor will write a pardon. But he's stuck. He can't do what God does. And that man may go free, but he may murder somebody else because he can't change his heart. But God is capable, if we're willing to let him, to change the very desires of our heart. And before he will give us the heavenly pardon, he will perform that miracle upon our hearts. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. It is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. So it's God's power. Again, <coughs> God does all the impossible things. All we have to do is the possible things. And even then, when we're doing the possible things, we're doing it under his power because we have no power of our own. Okay, just uh, putting in my own words now, what changes take place <clears throat> when we're pardoned or justified our record from the past is covered. Now, some people try to say that our sins are cast into the depths of the sea or as far as the east is from the west. That will happen, but not at this point. Because let's suppose that we give up following Christ uh, and we go back and, and live a life of sin again. We're not uh, connected to Christ anymore, and we end up uh, either dying or, or probation closes. Every single sin that we ever did will come back on us, every one. So the more accurate way to speak about it is that it's covered. It's covered by the blood of Jesus, and nobody can see it. As long as you're in Christ, your sins cannot be seen. They're covered by his blood. Second, we receive his record of right doing. You see, you can't go to heaven unless you've never ever sinned, unless you never ever did anything wrong, either by thought or word or deed. You have to have a perfect record, but there's only one way you can get a perfect record, and that's to get the record of Jesus. But when you are pardoned, you get that record. Now, it's provisional because if you turn away, you lose it. But as long as you're in Christ, you have it. You have that perfect record of Jesus. Number three, his creative power changes our basic motives. Now, the reason I put the word basic is because he only can change the motives that you can grasp at that point. And so as you walk the Christian life, you will discover some more motives that don't belong. But you're eligible then to have those created as well. And so... The basic motives, though, are created, and that's why we call it conversion. 
because you make a 180-degree turn. You're, you're chasing the world. You're chasing the things of sin. But when you are converted, you go toward heaven. And so your basic motives are changed. And a whole lot of things get changed at that point. So his creative power changes our basic motives, and you want to please him now. And number four, we are now connected to his power, which makes obedience possible. Previous to this, obedience is not possible because you're working in your human strength. But as soon as you are connected with him, now with the power that he has to supply you with, you can obey. And we should never entertain the idea that we can't. Never. And that thought comes from the devil. We need to learn to reject it. It is possible to obey when you are connected with Jesus. And he's given you these motives that are created there. Now, you understand creation, right? Creation means that God doesn't have to have anything to start with. Creation means he makes it out of nothing. And so we don't have anything for him to build this on. He has to create it out of nothing. But all these things, because he is the creator, he is able to create all these things in our hearts. <clears throat> now you may hear uh, theologians talk about legal justification. But, well, I'm not going to say what they mean is, is wrong because probably what they mean is okay. Uh, I don't really know for sure. But I know for me it was a misleading uh, because it uses the word justification. It's, it's a misleading term. So I don't really like that. But this, I believe, you can defend because it's from the inspired writings. And uh, I've never seen legal justification in the inspired writings, either in the Bible or spirit of prophecy. It's, it's not there. Signs of the Times of June 6, 1895. God sent his only begotten son to proclaim to all the inhabitants of the world I have found a ransom. I have made a way of escape for all the perishing. How many? All. all. So it's not just those that accept Jesus. It's all the people of the world. That's what it's talking about. I have made a way of escape for all the perishing. I have your emancipation papers provided for you sealed by the Lord of heaven and earth. So if we say that the emancipation papers have been signed at Calvary, we are completely right. Now, let's just think about what that really means. You know, if you have a contract that you're going to make with someone that has mutual obligations, you have to have the signature of both people before it's valid. And so what this is saying is that Jesus has a contract with all the human race. And he says, I've already signed it. The only thing that's left is for you to sign it. If you sign it, it's perfectly valid. Everything that I can do for you will take place. <clears throat> but if you don't sign it, then you don't get everything. Now, there are some things that people get even if they don't sign. And maybe sometime we can study what that is. But as we look at this, we're seeing that any individual that's willing to say, I am willing to be your child, that signs the document, and all of what we're talking about in this message will be true for you. 
In uh, My Life Today, page 317, it says, With his own blood, he has signed the emancipation papers of the race. You know, in uh, some days past, they used to sign some things in blood. Well, maybe they got the idea from this, I don't know. But Jesus signed those papers in his blood. However, there is a danger when people study the book of Romans. And because of that danger, God inspired James to write. And he appears to be opposing the book of Romans, but he doesn't really. In James 2, verses 21 to 24, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified or pardoned by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Interesting. He uses the same term that's used in Romans and Galatians. And this time, though, he puts works in there. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Suppose Abraham had stayed home and not gone and offered his son. Would he have been justified? No, they wouldn't. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? And by works was faith made perfect, or we could say complete. So it takes two parts. Now, Elder Frizee preached this sermon one time, and he, he said that it's like a coin. You know, with a coin, you have a, one picture on one side, and you have another picture on the other side. If all you have is one picture, you don't have a coin. You have to have both pictures in order to have the coin. I thought that was a good illustration. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then, how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. James 2, 21 and 24. Now, in order to grasp this, we have to understand what I already shared with you, that pardon includes changing you. So, when you're changed, you're going to act different. Now, I thought of another illustration that helped me anyway. Uh, It's like a battery. Pardon is like a battery. Now, your battery can be fully charged, and the positive cable can be connected to your battery, but if the negative cable is not connected, you're not going anywhere. There is nothing happening until you connect the negative cable. Now the current can flow through that battery and and you can start your car and you can run your car. So the positive represents uh, faith. The negative represents works. And if God sees, and of course he knows what you're going to do, if he sees that With that faith, you're not going to do anything. You're not justified. You have to have the works also besides the faith, and real faith will work. Real faith will do something. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. But Paul is in agreement. It's just that he talks more about faith. Because in Romans 2.13, he says, the doers of the law shall be justified. So he and James are in agreement, but often the people that talk about faith 
Don't talk about James. And yet we need to put the two together to keep a balanced view. Great Controversy, page 472 says, The desire for an easy religion that requires no striving, no self-denial, no divorce from the follies of the world, has made the doctrine of faith and faith only a popular doctrine. But what saith the word of God? Says the Apostle James, what, prof what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? The obvious answer is no, if he doesn't have works. And the truth is, if he doesn't have works, he doesn't even have faith. You know, as you read that chapter, you see it calls that dead faith. So there's living faith and there's dead faith. If a person doesn't work, they have a dead faith. It's not really faith at all. But now let's think about something here, uh, this desire for an easy religion. Now the emphasis that I gave you in the Sabbath school one, and if you didn't hear that, you may want to watch it on YouTube, but the emphasis I gave that is because that idea is so hard for people to get. So I have to really emphasize it, that God does everything first. And you can't do a thing until he does something. But in this one, we realize that there is a part for you, and if you don't do that part, you will not succeed. And that part is not always easy. God doesn't do anything that we can do. He does everything we can't do, but he won't do one thing that we can do. And so he sees <clears throat> what we are able to do, and he leaves that to us to draw on the power of God and to fight against the evil that is in our lives and to seek to resist and at times you will feel like, Lord, I can't be faithful. Don't listen to that. That's not true. That's a lie of the devil. You have connected to you enough power to resist and to conquer. And as long as your faith doesn't give out, as long as you believe, and then your works, you know, you, you move forward to, to be faithful, you will find that you can that you will succeed. But any time you let doubt come in there, then you probably will fall. I like uh, this slide because to me it puts it together very well. In Faith and Works, page 100, it says, in order for man to be justified by faith, faith must reach a point where it will control the affections and impulses of the heart. That's very important. You see, you don't have faith unless it does that. Faith is an action word, and it controls the impulses of the heart. In order for a man to be justified by faith, faith must reach a point where it will control the affections and impulses of the heart. And it is by obedience that faith is made perfect. So there we have a clear reference of the truth on the relationship of faith and works together. And here's another one. First selected messages, 397. The faith that does not produce good works does not justify the soul. It's very clear. If it doesn't produce faithfulness, if it doesn't produce obedience, it's not even faith. And you won't be pardoned. And uh, here's one that puts it together. Signs of the Times of July, uh, no, yeah, July 26, 1905. 
the gospel of Christ is truly believed only when it is practiced. There's an awful lot of people talking about righteousness by faith, and in their own life, they're not practicing it. It doesn't do any good to preach it, because pretty soon, people are going to see that you're not practicing it. So, what God wants us to do, yes, first, we have to understand it, because we can't practice it if we don't understand it, but the very next step is to put it into practice and live by those things. Faith is justified by works. In my research, I found this reference about why did James feel that he needed to give us this a chapter, chapter 2, is the one he deals with this. Why did he have to do that? Seventh Bible Commentary 936. The Apostle James saw that dangers would arise in presenting the subject of justification by faith. And he labored to show that genuine faith cannot exist without corresponding works. So... You know, James was the general conference president, and people were preaching justification by faith back then, just like now, and they were getting off the track. And because they were off the track, he realized, you know, they're using the writings of Paul and they're misunderstanding, and so they're going off the track. So he felt the inspiration of God to write his epistle, and to include in it chapter 2. And as we find a way to put Romans, Galatians, and James 2 together, then we will have the right understanding of what it says. Now when, at what point are we pardoned or are we justified? Is it before any inspired works appear? Here's uh, from Faith and Works, page 111, on a, an instruction to Jones. Now, I think that one of the problems that's around today is worship of Jones and Wagner. I appreciate what they wrote. I appreciate what they uh, were called by God to do, but I don't believe in worshiping them. We have something more solid than the writings of Jones and Wagner even. We have the Bible, and we have the writings of Ellen White. They are solid rock. And here is on one occasion what Ellen White had to say to Jones. You're repeated several times, you repeated several times that works amounted to nothing, that there were no conditions. In other words, just believe you have it, and you have it. While good works will not save even one soul, yet it is impossible for even one soul to be saved without good works. God saves us under a law that we must ask if we would receive, seek if we would find, and knock if we would have the door open unto us. So, as she listened to Jones presenting it, and if you read that whole section, you'll find she said also to him, you know, you don't understand the message clearly. And so when people ask you questions, you can't answer them in a way that they can grasp it or understand it because it's not clear in your own mind. And yet he had a better understanding than, you know, most people had, and he was trying to uh, pass that on. And she says to him, she gives him a list 
of works. <laughs> she says, you have to ask, that's a work. You have to seek, that's a work. You have to knock, and all of those are works. And she's saying, you got to have both. You got to have faith and works in order to receive justification. And that's why, actually, I like this phrase. Now, I've, I've brought this one up to a lot of people who teach righteousness by faith, and it makes them uncomfortable. But from my study, this is really putting it together. Therefore, we are justified by a working faith after it works. In 1880, whoops, I hit it too many. In 
we have to even repudiate that as well and receive what he has to offer. In amazement, this is the same reference, in amazement he hears the message, ye are complete in him. Because now he has covered you with his perfect record of the past. Nothing is wrong on the record at all. And he has changed your heart so that you want to be obedient from this point on. And so you are now complete in him. And as long as you stay in him, you will be complete. You will be growing, you know, in your own obedience, uh, becoming more and more obedient. But while you're learning, you are complete in him. Uh, an illustration of this came to mind in regard to a young child that's just learning to walk. And you know how a baby, when they first start walking, they just fall so frequently, and they stumble over the least little wrinkle in the carpet or whatever it is. Uh, do we punish them and say, what's the matter with you? Why don't you walk better? No, we understand. They're a baby. And so in the Christian life, <clears throat> your desires are changed right away as soon as you receive your pardon. But if you're a brand new Christian, you may do a lot of stumbling around. But don't get discouraged about that. You might be unhappy while Jesus is happy. He's happy because you're doing pretty good for a baby Christian. And, and you're, you know, you're on the path to advance and, and to do better. Now, if after you've been a Christian for 10 years, you're still stumbling like that little baby, that's a different story. And so God is, is leading us to advance step by step in our ability to obey. And what it boils down to is our, is our ability to, to keep hold of his strength. That's what helps us to obey. And there's other factors as well. But that's a very important concept. And if we understand that, then we'll be, we'll be happier with our Christian experience at every step of the way. <clears throat> Let's see, did I finish that one? In amazement he hears the message, ye are complete in him. Now, all is at rest in his soul. That's the peace that Romans 5 talked about. All is at rest. Everything is okay between you and God. No longer must he strive to find some worthiness in himself, some meritorious deed by which to gain the favor of God. He doesn't have to try to prove himself and say, Lord, look what I did for you. So I need salvation because of what I did for you. No. He is at perfect peace because he is now in Christ. In manuscript release, page 371, it says, If man cannot, by any of his good works, merit salvation, then it must be holy of grace. Now, I don't like the term faith alone, and I examined Ellen White's writings for that term. It does appear a couple of times, but <coughs> most of the time it doesn't use that term. But we can say by grace alone. Why? Because you're pardoned by grace, and it's by grace that you can walk in obedience. So it's holy of grace. Then it must be holy of grace, received by man as a sinner because he receives and believes in Jesus. It is wholly a free gift. Justification or pardon by faith is placed beyond controversy. And all this controversy is ended as soon as the matter is settled that the merits of fallen man and his good works 
can never procure eternal life for him. Now, the good works it's talking about are human good works. God never casts reflection on inspired works, what I call what Jesus inspires you to do has his righteousness mingled with it. And so you'll never find any condemnation of inspired works. The condemnation is always on the human works, what you do apart from Christ, what you do without him. That, that has no value at all. It's, it's filthy dirty. And we'll close with this, Manuscript Release 371. There is not one jot more than the grace and talent first given of God. So all we can do is use what God gives. We can't originate anything. There must be nothing less given than duty prescribes. And there cannot be one jot more given than they have first received. So if, if I do something good, all I can do is say, thank you, Jesus, for helping me. Or doing it through me might be a better. Thank you, Jesus, for doing it through me. There cannot be one jot more given than they have first received. And all must be laid upon the fire of Christ's righteousness to cleanse it from its earthly odor now, this is talking about inspired works. It still has to be uh, surrounded and covered by his righteousness before it rises in a cloud of fragrant incense to the great Jehovah and is accepted as a sweet savor. So here as we look at this wonderful subject that God was trying to bring to the Adventist church. And there was great resistance because of several factors. But <clears throat> he is still trying to bring this precious message to us. And when we get it, not just think we get it, but when we really get it, we're going to get so excited about the message that we have for the world that we're going to give it to the world in a short time. The reason we haven't given it to the world is that we don't know the message yet. We're like that runner in the Old Testament that thought he understood the message and he wanted to run. And so he got to the king and the king said, what's the message? He said, I don't know. He said, I saw a big upheaval and things going on, but I don't know what the message is. Now, in, in a way, we're worse than that because we think we have the message when we don't have it. But it's not turning the world upside down. However, when we understand this, and we have to understand it in practice, not just in theory, because they look at our lives more than they listen to our preaching. And so when we understand it and we put it into practice, we will turn this world upside down in a very short time. May that be true very, very soon.